The reading this morning is from the letter of Paul that he wrote to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus according to Matthew. Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother or sister's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to them, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of another's eye. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. As we remain standing, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I, as preacher, would just get out of the way. There'd be far less of me and far more of you, that your people gathered this day would be edified and your son, Jesus, glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? We're now in the home stretch in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, learning to live in step with the kingdom, in sync with new creation. And as we begin chapter 7, Jesus turns to our relationships. This is what relationships are meant to look like for a kingdom people. Here's what full flourishing personal relationships embody. Here Jesus begins to build to a central principle that is meant to guide every relationship we find ourselves in. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That principle is meant to guide every relational decision we face. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But what does that look like? And how do we get there? 
Well, in these five packed verses, Jesus invites us in our relationships to step away from a destructive posture and instead speak truth in love. Kingdom relationships are to be those relationships where we step away from a destructive posture and instead speak truth in love. So first, step away from a destructive posture. Verse 1. Judge not. Now that statement of Jesus is likely one that deeply resonates with our contemporary culture, right? In fact, this is one of the most well-known teachings of Jesus. Why? Because it appears, at least at face value, to affirm one of our highest cultural values, that of tolerance. As a society, we believe that as long as we're not hurting anyone else, we should be free to be, to do, to identify as, to throw off societal, familial, cultural, and religious expectations that we might be freely ourselves. And for that to work, there must be tolerance. There must be no imposition of absolute standards. Relativism must rule the day. The only thing that you can be intolerant of is intolerance itself. And Jesus' words here are often utilized to affirm such a perspective. Judge not. Don't impose your standards on anyone else. Be tolerant. Give people the space to be who they freely and truly are. Now, is this what Jesus intends? could be. I mean, the word judge had huge semantic range. It meant different things depending on the context. In one context, it could be referring to legal judgment. Judge not, do away with your justice system. But there's nothing in the text that makes us believe that Jesus is inferring that. In another context, it could mean what we often take it to mean. Don't discern. Don't evaluate. Don't make judgment between right and wrong, between what should be done, what should not be done. But if that is what Jesus means here, he's been contradicting himself throughout the entire sermon. For he said, don't do it that way, do it this way. Don't respond to to, to wrong with bitterness and, and anger, but rather with forgiveness Don't be like the Pharisees who who parade their goodness around for others to see. Instead, keep it between you and God. He's been actively inviting us to discern, to evaluate, to make distinctions between right and wrong. So that leaves then only one semantic option. Don't judge. Don't make final evaluations. Don't close the book on another. Don't be censorious, approaching others with a judgmental, critical spirit. It seems that Jesus is not inviting us to suspend discernment of people, situations, or character, but rather to play very, very close attention to what we do with it. For in judgment, we flatter ourselves by giving the best possible justifications and excuses for our own behavior, but we'll interpret everyone else's in the worst possible light. My road rage was due to the bad day that I had. I'm a victim here. Your road rage? You're a very angry person, and I pity the people that have to live with you. In judgment, we erode relationships. 
choking off openness and vulnerability as others wall off areas of their heart and life from us for fear they'll be judged. In judgment, we claim an authority to read hearts and motivations. We make snap judgments without all the facts and won't change our minds when a new perspective comes in. In judgment, we'll externalize wrong. A relationship erodes and we'll lay the blame for it at the foot of the other. We'll become overly critical of them to protect self. But every broken relationship is contributed to by both parties. Such externalizing of blame and judgment only leaves you susceptible to repeating the same pattern in every subsequent relationship. Don't judge. Oh yes, hang on to your critical faculties, make evaluation, discern right from wrong, but be very, very cautious with what you do with it. Judge not, that you be not judged, continues Jesus. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Now there are two ways we could take that. In some ways, this is just great insight into the way that relationship works. We foster in others what we bring to the table. If we're in relationship with someone who is merciful and open and understanding, that tends to be the spirit of that relationship, as we'll extend the mercy and grace that has been given to us. But if we're in relationship with someone who's judgmental as a critical spirit, we'll be guarded and protected in that relationship as their fault-finding were fault-finding. We tend to foster in others in those relationships what we bring to the table. But there's another way to hear Jesus. The passive language here, more often than not, refers to God. Jesus is saying, when you judge, you're taking the place of God. You're saying, I can see into that person's heart. I know what motivates them. I can make the final determination of their character. I have everything I need to close the book on them. That's usurping God. That's taking God's place. And Jesus is saying, you want to take the place of God? Okay. Then you'll be measured by the same standard you hold up for others. Imagine for a moment you have an app on your phone. And every time you hold up a standard for others, make a judgment between what is right and what is wrong, the app records you. And at the end of your life, you come before the judgment seat of Christ, and Jesus says, I see that you've taken my place as judge, as discerner of hearts and motivations. Okay. Since you've taken my place, I I won't hold you accountable to my standards, I'll hold you accountable to your standards. And then the app begins to play back all of the standards that you've held up for others. And the question is asked, did you hold up even to your own standards? I don't know about you, but I would be decimated in moments. Judge not, that you be not judged. Jesus then brings it home with a hard-hitting yet humorous image. Why do you see the speck in another's eye and you don't notice the beam in your own? Why is it that you 
point out to others, let me, let me help you with that speck. When you can't even move, you can't even see, you can't even maneuver, what with that beam coming out of your eye? Humor can be incredibly disarming. Meant to wake us up to reality. Oh yes, discern, evaluate, use your critical faculties. But you are in no position to bring such things to bear in relationships with others. You don't see yourself rightly. How can you ever possibly see another rightly? Kingdom relationships flourish when we step away from that destructive posture. Judge not. Now this is where we often leave it. Don't judge. Don't play God. Worry about the log in your own eye, not the specks in others. Mind your own business. Let them worry about their specks. Let them get in front of the mirror with that tissue or those pairs of tweezers and sort it out on their own. But they had no mirror. And the speck in the eye is a real problem. There's watering, there's pain, there's discomfort. If you've ever had anything in your eye, you know the pain and the discomfort, the the reality that you cannot do or think of anything else until you get that thing out of your eye. In Jesus' world, specks in the eye needed the help of another. They needed someone to come alongside in love, to aid, to support, to guide. And that is exactly Jesus' point. We need others who love us enough to help us get rid of the irritants, to point out and help us to remove the things that are not enabling us to live the full life that God intended, the hindrances to living in step with the kingdom. This is one of the primary functions of healthy Christian community. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, we're to speak truth in love that we might grow up into the fullness of Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, we should consider all the ways that we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Perhaps we could think of it this way. I was meeting with someone this week who's taken to coaching his son's baseball team. And as a coach, he's there to encourage the things that will enable those young men to reach their full potential or to point out the things in their swing or their throw or their situational awareness that is hindering them from reaching that full potential. And these young men, they need that. They appreciate it. They yearn for it. They want it. They ask for it. Why? Because together they've made a commitment to be the best baseball team that they can be. We are a Christian community that have committed ourselves to Jesus to living out the patterns of the kingdom, to anticipate the new creation in everything we do and say and pray, to grow to maturity in Christ that we might reflect his character. Would we not then similarly desire others to come around us in love, to encourage those things that we should press into, and to point out in love what is hindering that, that we might come into that fullness together? Well, yes, you might say, I can understand that. But I can see a whole host of ways that could go wrong. In fact, I've seen how that can go wrong. Indeed so, for that movement toward a judgmental, critical spirit is natural to every one of our hearts. Which is why Jesus is deeply, deeply concerned with the state of our hearts before we would ever attempt in love 
to support one another by speaking truth in love. You want to win love? Get rid of that speck in a fellow disciple's eye? Okay, says Jesus, verse 5. First deal with the log in your own eye. But how might we do that? E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist theologian and missionary to India. He was a good personal friend of Gandhi, and they would often speak of the Sermon on the Mount together. And Jones wrote in a book on the Sermon on the Mount on these verses, he wrote this. The attitude of censoriousness, that judgmental, critical spirit, is always a sign of a declining spiritual life. When religious people start backsliding, they begin backbiting. Let me say that again. The attitude of censoriousness, that judgmental, critical spirit, is always a sign of a declining spiritual life. When religious people start backsliding, they begin backbiting. Which means what? It means that the way to step away from that judgmental posture and embrace a life of speaking truth and love is the fruit of spiritual renewal. And that is exactly where Jesus invites us. Verse 5. You hypocrite. Which is the word for actor. Someone who's pretending to be something that they're not. You hypocrite. Stop pretending to be something that you're not. You've got a beam in your eye. You can't see yourself clearly. You cannot see others clearly. So how do we see others clearly? We look at the glory. The majesty the holiness of the living God, and know that in Jesus, this is who I was created to be. This is the character I meant to display, the love I meant to embody, the compassion I meant to express. And do I see Jesus reflected in me? That's an encounter that would utterly decimate us. A few weeks ago, Karen invited us to see that in Isaiah's encounter with the holiness of God in the temple, and when he does, he says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. An encounter with the holiness, glory of God, is meant to bring us to our knees. Wretched, blind fool that I am, who will rescue me? But we run from such an encounter, don't we? We're a culture of self-esteem, self-worth, positive self-talk. Anything other than that is seen as unhealthy, problematic to our sense of self and worth to how we navigate life and relationships. But the good news of the gospel is that when we see ourselves in light of the glory and holiness of God and are rightly undone, we are met with the lavish love of God in Jesus for a God, in God, there is no condemnation, only love, only mercy, only forgiveness, only grace, only adoption. You're my beloved child, I delight in you, only an invitation, come follow me, and I will make you new. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will find healing through his grace and mercy, and then you will be able to take the speck out in another. It was D.M. Lloyd-Jones in a sermon on this text who said this. How can we get the speck out? 
There's only one thing that matters at that point, and that is that you should be humble. You should be sympathetic. You should be so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in another, far from condemning, you feel like weeping. You're full of compassion. You really do want to help. You've so enjoyed getting rid of that thing in yourself that you want for that other person their pleasure, their joy, their freedom. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of another. As you know from a sermon earlier in this series, I was married before. And about four years into that marriage, I discovered the affairs, a betrayal that cut to the very heart of who I was. I didn't talk much about it, but very soon a destructive alternative narrative began to be shared. And I was deeply, deeply hurt. And that hurt primarily expressed itself as anger. It would flash up at the least provocation and be directed toward whomever was closest at the time. Anger was eating me up, building bitterness and resentment in my heart, eating relationships up, pushing those closest to me away. Two Christian friends walked with me during that season, supporting, loving, but at times suffering at the hands of my anger. But in love, one of them spoke into that anger, pointing out where that anger was harming relationships, marring the image of God in me. He could see the future self that I was fostering, and it grieved him. And he invited me in my anger to consider the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. To instead, in the face of wrong, not respond with vengeance or bearing a grudge, but rather to forgive. To instead of spewing out my anger, to pray for the one who had betrayed me. It wasn't easy to hear. It was harder still to begin that trajectory toward forgiveness. Harder still to begin to pray for her. But I began to pray, not because I felt like it, I didn't feel like it, but as an act of obedience. And the feelings followed. It's hard to stay angry at someone that you're praying for. Soon, every time in church where the intercessor left a gap for us to pray our own prayers for those on our hearts and minds, I would be triggered to pray for her. Not to process my anger before God or ask God to change her or bring justice, but to pray for her best, her blessing. Soon, her marriage, her deepening life in Christ. So deeply ingrained did that pattern of prayer come for me that still now, when our intercessor leaves space open for us to pray, I will pray for her. The person who hurt me the most in my life is now the person I prayed for the most in my life. And living in line with the teaching of Jesus on this came as a result of my friend loving me enough to speak the truth into that. Him being led by the Spirit to come alongside me and point out the speck and direct me to the truth of the gospel for its removal. And I will be forever grateful for him. And I was able to hear it because his heart had been broken by the weight of his own sin. 
I was able to hear it because his sin loomed larger for him than did my sin. I was able to hear it because there wasn't an ounce of condemnation in his words because he'd encountered a God in whom there is no condemnation. I was able to hear it because he had tasted in his sin the love, mercy, and forgiveness of God that he was now extending to me. This is what Jesus is inviting us here to do one for another. To speak truth in love. To do for others what we would want done for ourselves. That we might grow into maturity in Jesus. That we might spur one another on to love and good deeds. But the sad reality is that we rarely, if ever, press into this kind of work. But we desperately need it. For our sake, our community's sake, our world's sake. And as this is an oft-neglected aspect of our shared life together, we're going to be looking at it again next week as we're going to bring in the rest of the verses leading up to verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But for now, let's invite the Spirit to shape our hearts toward this work. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you how so often a judgmental, critical spirit defines our relationships with one another. May we, in that posture, be confronted by your holiness and glory, that we may only cry out, wretched, blind that I am, who will rescue me? And be met in that moment with your lavish love, grace, and forgiveness. By the power of the Spirit, form in us a heart that can walk in love with one another, speaking truth in love and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. To your glory alone we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.